should have mentioned it before the, the prayer. We all prayed for it together. But one of these four designated missionaries, it's listed there on the back of the worship guide. Um, moving forward, it'll be in our church directory. We'll have them listed. But one of those is this church we prayed for, Grace Harbor Church up in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, you heard the things that we thank the Lord for uh, together, but they just do a great work of strengthening local churches in New England. New England is a hard place spiritually, not tons of believers there. It feels significantly different from the South in that way. And the influence of the gospel isn't as present in New England. So it's just an incredible work they're doing, planting churches, because that's how the, the Lord's work goes forward. That's why in the Great Commission, Jesus tells you, baptize and teach them to obey all that I commanded. And then you see Paul apply that by planting churches, raising up elders, and then having those churches hopefully plant other churches. Well, that's what they're doing in New England. And so that's a ministry that, uh, that now we're supporting as a church. October is the month where we can give funds to these four designated missionaries. And if you feel led by the Lord, you can write a check for that in the memo line. You could put a particular, uh, you could write in one of those four designated missionaries particularly, or you could just write designated missionaries and we'll just divide up that money. So anyway, take advantage of that if, if you feel led, but we're thankful for that work in, in New England. Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter six. Page 747, if you're using one of our hardback Bibles, will definitely be helpful if you've got the word open so you can follow along as we move uh, throughout this passage. We'll be in the first half of the chapter, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. There's an outline on the back of the worship guide. We're kind of in the middle of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to see where we're going, kind of keep an eye on things as we move along Zechariah 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, in, in 1945, most of you probably know this, Germany surrendered to the Allied forces, and World War II basically came to a close. It, it was officially over in Europe, at least. That happened on May 8th, 1945. It's what's called VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. However, the world really knew that the, the war was over almost a year earlier, June 6th, 1944, after the events of what's known as D-Day. And that's when the, the largest uh, uh, attack that came from the ocean, at least, occurred in human history, where the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in France. And the end of those battles, everybody, the world basically understood Hitler had lost and the Allies had won. Even though, remember, it was technically 11 months later when the war actually came to a, a conclusion. But they understood that 11 months earlier, D-Day was, was really signaling to the world that Hitler had lost and, and the Allies had won. Well, in our passage this morning, God declares the defeat of his enemies. He declares the defeat of his people's enemies. And, and even though that defeat, it wouldn't come until much later than Zechariah's prophesying. In fact, the full defeat of God's enemies and the people of God's enemies, that hasn't occurred yet. It's still future. We read about that this morning in Matthew and in Revelation 6. We're still waiting on that full defeat. However, the fact that God declared his plan for his enemies, which he does all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, but here in Zechariah 6, we're going to see this morning, the fact he has declared that, that's when their defeat became certain. The second that God's word said that, that was like D-Day. All of a sudden, the entire universe should understand, oh, they really are 
finished. It's only a matter of time. That's what we see here in Zechariah 6. So hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. And they were told, again, I lifted my eyes and saw. And behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Okay, so this is the final of eight visions. You remember that's the first half of Zechariah, is the prophet Zechariah being given eight individual visions. This is the eighth one. And it fits with the first one. It creates sort of like an envelope. The themes are the same. You remember, we've talked about this before. This is what uh, in, in literature would be called an inclusio, inclusion, Latin there for inclusion. So the idea is there's kind of bookends and the bookends are similar. So the beginning of a writing has a theme, the end of that writing has a theme and it's supposed to encompass the whole thing. And you understand what all of it's about based on those bookends. Well, that's what we see here with, with Zechariah 6 in this eighth vision. It fits with the first one. So let's retrace the visions real quick. So we'll start with vision two. Remember, that was about the horns being sawn down by these craftsmen. It was a picture of God's enemies being destroyed and, and defeated. That happened in vision two. Then vision three, that was about that man going to the, the future heavenly city. And he's going to measure it to make a wall for it. You remember that? And the angel says, you don't have to do that. The city is too big, it's too good, it's protected by the Lord, it doesn't need walls, so you don't have to measure for it. That was vision three. Vision four was Joshua the high priest, who had dirty clothes, that symbolizes our sin. Those dirty clothes are taken from him, he's given clean clothes, that represents the righteousness of Christ that we're given when we trust in Jesus and the gospel. That was vision four. Vision five was the lamps and the two olive trees. You remember that? The oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming through God's servants, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest. They're the ones that God's going to use to rebuild the temple. So the Holy Spirit works through them to build up the people of God. That's the lamp. And then vision six, you remember that was the flying scroll that tells God's people about their sin. And then uh, vision, uh, vision six also, the, or vision seven rather, the woman in the basket. We talked about that earlier today, where the sin is being taken away from God's people outside of heaven. Well, vision eight and vision one are both visions of horses. So there's this connection here. We're supposed to draw the significance of that. Okay, they're both the same. And in both visions, the horses are symbolic of the same truth. We talked about this in vision one. And the truth is, God's attention is on every inch of the universe, and his judgment is coming on his enemies. That's what these horses are meant to convey to us. His attention is on every inch of the universe, and his judgment is coming on his enemies. 
Well, now that we're sort of oriented, as we look at this eighth vision, we're going to see four main points. And these are listed on the back of the outline there. The first thing we're going to see, we'll see that the heavenly kingdom is infinitely better than any earthly kingdom. It's the first thing we're going to see. Second, we're going to see that God exercises complete control over the universe. Third, we're going to see God is the one most troubled by sin in our world. And then finally, that God's future defeat of his enemies is certain. So those are the four points we're going to draw out of this passage. Well, again, the first point we want to notice is that the heavenly kingdom is infinitely better than any earthly kingdom. So verse 1 tells us we've got these chariots that are sent out from the Lord. Let's look at where they are sent from, their, their place of origin. Look at verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out, from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Okay, if you look down at verse 5, so verse 1 gives us sort of a note about where they're coming from, but look down at verse 5. They were told wherever the starting point is for these horses, it's where the Lord is. Because again, in verse 5, we're told, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So the picture is, okay, these horses, they're going out from the Lord's presence, and as they leave his presence, they're going between these two bronze mountains. That's the picture he's given in the vision. So what would that have communicated to Zechariah's original audience? What should it communicate to us? Well, I think it's pretty likely any Israelite would have instantly thought about Solomon's temple if they heard this description. Okay, these horses are going out from God's presence, where God's presence is, they're going between two bronze mountains. I think instantly they would have thought about Solomon's temple. So remember, that was the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians just a few generations before. That was part of God's judgment on his people. He exiles them to Babylon. The Babylonians destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. But remember, here we are in Zechariah. He's brought his people back, and they're going to rebuild the temple. Well, the temple they're rebuilding is the original uh, temple Solomon built that had been destroyed. Well, in 1 Kings 7, it's documented that Solomon commissions the construction of two giant bronze pillars. That's what goes out in front of the temple. Okay, so when an Israelite hears in this vision horses riding away from God's presence, and remember, where was God's presence on earth? It was in the temple. That's where God put his presence. They're riding out from God's presence in between two bronze mountains, almost certainly. They would have thought, oh, this is a picture of the temple, of leaving the temple where God's presence is going between these two bronze pillars. But it's not a picture of an earthly temple. It, it's a picture of a heavenly temple. Because the thing is, every Israelite knew, while God was gracious to put his presence in the earthly temple, at least sort of in, in, a, in a minor way, in a temporary way, his, his full presence was in heaven, in the heavenly realms. That's the picture that we're given in scripture. That's what they would have understood. So when Zechariah sees this vision, he would have understood this isn't an earthly temple that, that we're dealing with. This is God's heavenly kingdom that, that the horses are riding out from. But here's what we want to notice here. It's our first point. We want to notice how much bigger and better the heavenly temple is than what they had on earth. Reminds us how much better God's uh, heavenly kingdom is than any earthly kingdom. So, so the imagery is that you've got the earthly temple with bronze pillars out front, which is impressive. 
don't know if you visited Washington, D.C., but so many of the buildings and the museums have those big, giant pillars that are beautiful and really formidable and impressive. So that's an impressive thing until it's compared to two bronze mountains. So that's, that's, the, kind of, uh, that's the kind of upcharge we're thinking about here. Whereas the earthly temple has bronze pillars, God's heavenly kingdom has bronze mountains. That's the picture. Columns compared to mountains. Well, the heavenly kingdom, it's infinitely better than any earthly kingdom. And the Lord's been telling us that since the beginning of this book. So remember in chapter two, we saw how the future heavenly city, it's too big, too inhabited, too protected to need walls. So it's better than they could even imagine. God will be its protection, we're told. And then in chapter five, a few weeks ago, we were told that God will take all unrepentant sinners, all his enemies, he'll take them outside of, uh, of the heavenly kingdom. He'll take them away forever. And then in chapter three, we were told God would take away all sin completely from the land and from this future heavenly kingdom. So the heavenly kingdom, it's, it's infinitely better than any earthly kingdom. In the place of pillars, the heavenly temple of the Lord has two bronze mountains. It'll be safe. The future heavenly kingdom will be protected. Nothing bad will ever get in. Now again, compare that to earthly kingdoms. The people hearing this prophecy, they knew what could happen to an earthly temple. It had happened. The columns, you can read about this. When the Babylonians came in, it's in Jeremiah. I think it's Jeremiah 52. When the Babylonians come in, they made a point to chop down these bronze columns and to destroy them. God's people had seen an earthly kingdom get demolished by the enemies of God's, uh, of God's people. That still happens, right? We've seen it even in the past few weeks with the attacks on Jerusalem. That city gets attacked. Things happen. Earthly kingdoms can be destroyed. We, we heard it in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 11, where the psalmist says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So in other words, God's people in the Old Testament, they, they were part of a, a kingdom, but it was an earthly kingdom. That means it could be attacked. People could shoot arrows at it. They could storm it, and it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. But listen to Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So see, God's place is one that can't be touched by his enemies. Can't be touched. And praise God, that's the final destination for God's people. Listen to Revelation 21, 2, the imagery we're given there. They were told... And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Like Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 25 through 26, the real Jerusalem for God's people isn't the present Jerusalem on earth. No, the real Jerusalem for God's people is what he calls the Jerusalem above, just like Revelation 21 does. Or Hebrews 12, 22 calls the heavenly Jerusalem. And that heavenly city, it can't be touched by God's enemies, not even now. And, and that's encouraging news, right? Especially when you think about the, the things you have here. You might wonder, okay, 
My car is doing well now. What kind of shape will my car be in in two years? I wonder about that. I love my 2007 CRV. I hope that it lasts forever. But I wonder, okay, in two years, what shape is my car going to be in? You might wonder about that. Or what shape will my house be in in 10 years? Or what shape will our country be in in a few decades? You might wonder about those sorts of things. But, but you can know for certain that the heavenly kingdom will be perfectly kept for eternity. No problem. No enemy will ever get to it. It'll never be attacked. And with that in mind, it makes sense to live for that kingdom, doesn't it? And it makes very little sense to live for earthly kingdoms. Earthly kingdoms will come and go. The things here will fall by the wayside. But God's heavenly kingdom will be kept safe. So, so when we're tempted to love this world in a sinful way, which we're tempted to do, aren't we? Feel that tug all the time. When you're tempted to love this world in a sinful way, try to remind yourself of that. My money won't last, and my house won't last. My, my, my kids, their athletic or academic achievements, or your grandkids, they, they won't last. E even those of us who are married, even our marriages won't last. Those are temporary. That's for this life. But see, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will last. So the, whereas the earthly temple can have bronze columns, God's heavenly kingdom has bronze mountains. It's a good picture for us. The heavenly kingdom is infinitely better than any earthly kingdom. Okay, so we've got these horses. They're doing the same thing they did back in the first vision. They're, they're marching out. We saw it in chapter 1. They're going out to patrol the earth. Look again at verse 1 in our passage. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses. I mean spotted, spotted horses. All of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Okay, now this is a, a vision. That means we're dealing with symbolism, but, but what do the symbols stand for? You might remember, we already talked about it, that the passage in chapter one, these horses, they're representative of God's oversight over the entire universe. It's our second point. God exercises complete control over the universe. It's the second main thing we see in this passage. So, so the picture we're given is that these horses are like God's eyes that are going all throughout his kingdom to collect information so that the Lord always knows what's going on. So the picture we're given is that those are these horses, and there's lots of horses in this vision. There's a group of red horses and a group of black horses and white horses and spotted horses. Now, it doesn't look like we're supposed to take any particular thing, uh, notice about the color. So in chapter 1, there's horses that are different colored than these. There's some overlap, but they're not the same. And then in Revelation 6, that Ramon read, same thing. Four horses listed, four different colors, but they don't match up exactly to this. They're a little bit different, but, but the Lord is clear in what he wants to communicate to us in this passage, which is just like in the first vision, these horses are a picture of God's complete awareness of everything that's going on in the universe that he created. So again, look at verse 5. And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Okay, so he uses that phrase, the four winds of heaven. So what's that getting at? Well, it's, it's a phrase that's used often in, in the Bible. We see it in Revelation as well. We'll look at it in a minute. But it's kind of like the four corners of the earth. 
So the picture is he's sending these horses everywhere. They're going all around the creation. God's supervision is universal is what's being pictured for us here. And this is something we're taught all over the place in the Bible. Listen to Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So God is always seeing all things. Or Psalm 121. We looked at this a few months ago. We preached this passage. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So God's always supervising everything. That's the same picture we're given here, just with this vision of these horses charging out on behalf of the Lord. Now, now that's a good question. If that's the case, why are we given this, this picture of God sending out horses to survey the world? He can see all these things himself. Why does he need horses to do it? Well, it's symbolic. This isn't something that's actually happening, but, but here, here is why I think the Lord writes it for us this way. It's pretty difficult to comprehend a God who sees everything happening in all the universe all at once. We can't imagine that. So every square inch of this universe right now has God's undivided attention. That's unbelievable, isn't it? We don't understand that. We can't put that together. We can't imagine that. Our, our thinking is so small and limited. It's much easier for people limited like us to understand a picture of a king sending out his messengers on horseback to look all throughout the kingdom and bring information back to him. It helps us to understand, but, but the point is the same. God has this supervision of the universe that's exhaustive. Every inch of the universe has his undivided attention all the time. But see, the, the horses in our vision, they symbolize more than God simply knowing everything. They actually symbolize his control over everything as well. So these horses, they have a mission to accomplish, and they will accomplish that mission. Look at the imagery in verse 7. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. So th these horses are chomping at the bit. I think about when uh, on Christmas morning, when we have our kids sit at the top of the stairs, and then Maria and I go down, and we sort of get ready, and we have a camera, and we're going to take pictures of them, and they are just waiting for the all clear, and then they charge down the steps, right? You may have done that growing up. You might remember that. You're chomping at the bit. That's the picture here of these horses. They're, they're ready to go. Or it's like if you watch the Kentucky Derby or a horse race and you see those horses that are just ready to go and charged up before they, they open up the gate. That's these horses here. Verse 7, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. Well, listen, that's how we should think about God's will. God's will is pulling at the reins, wanting to be accomplished. It's like these horses. He wants his will to come to pass. And just one application. This should be one of our greatest encouragements to pray. When we have this understanding, God wants his will to happen. His will is like horses that are chomping at the bit. That should make us want to pray. Re remember the model prayer Jesus gives us in Matthew 6. One of the main things he tells us we should be praying for is that God's will would be done. So, so as a Christian, this is an incredible thing. God uses your prayers and my prayers as one of the means by which he accomplishes his will in this world. Now, that is an incredible thing. 
He uses your prayers and my prayers as one of the means by which he accomplishes his will in this world. So, so God's will in a particular area is like a horse that's ready to charge out into the world. So maybe it's a, a non-Christian becoming a Christian. Maybe it's a Christian growing in holiness. Different things we can pray for is what we're thinking about. Or, or somebody in need being provided for in, in a material way. And see, it's like God is, is waiting for the prayer of a believer or a group of a believers. And then in response to that prayer, he'll, he'll release that horse and his will will be accomplished in that area. Now, we don't want to get the wrong idea. This doesn't mean God is reliant on our prayers. Like he wants to do something and he's thinking, ah, I just can't find somebody to pray for it. And if only somebody would pray for it, then I could do this thing. No, that's not the way this works. That's not the God of the Bible. Not even close. It's, it's much closer to the, the way it is when Marie is cooking or baking. And she says to one of the kids, hey, do you want to help me do this? Do you want to put in the flour? Do you want to put in the sugar? And the kids want to participate in that thing so they will do it. But listen, if the kids said, ah, you know what, I don't want to put the chocolate chips in, the cookies are still going to get made, praise the Lord. Maria is going to do what she has to do to make those cookies. The kids' non-participation, it's not going to take that plan off the rails. Same thing with the Lord. His will will be done. He's not reliant on us in that way. However, it's an incredible thing that he allows us to take part in the process of his will being accomplished in this life. Doesn't that make you want to pray more? It should, shouldn't it? That should be uh, something that spurs us on. As we mentioned often, if, if you're a member at this church, the Lord's calling you to, to pray for your fellow members. And, and like we say before, if you want to know what to pray, maybe there's somebody in the church directory and you see that name and you think, you know, I really don't know a ton about what's going on. That's no problem if you don't know the practical things going on in their life because the most important prayers to pray for that person are prayers that are not contingent on what's going on in their life. Because you know what? We're all sinners. We all need to grow in holiness. And we all need to hold on to our Savior. It's what we need more than anything else. Your house could burn down today. Is that a huge, massive need? Of course. You know what a bigger need is? For you to hold on to Jesus through this life. Because that house and your need for housing here on this earth will last you, what, a few decades? And that's it. But it's the eternal kingdom that you're aiming for. So we need Christ. That's the kind of prayer we can pray for fellow members. We want to pray for God's will as it's revealed in Scripture as we go through the directory and, and pray for one another. But certainly we want to be encouraged to pray, understanding that God's will wants to come to pass and we get to participate in that. So again, these horses, it's not just that God sees what's happening. He directs what's happening. He's in control of it. We're going to talk about this more in a minute. But this vision makes it clear there's an issue that needs to be squared away. It's, it's an issue that's happening due north of Jerusalem. Look at verse 8 at this problem. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Okay, so basically what, what happens is Israel's enemies are kind of gathered in the north, and God wants to exercise judgment against them. And so what he's saying is that judgment needs to be proclaimed 
which is what happens here in this passage. And once it's proclaimed, once that D-Day has happened, then all of a sudden God's spirit can be at rest. He knows that his will will be accomplished. And of course, his will is always accomplished. Isaiah 46, verse 10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Okay, so by way of application, in what areas of life are you tempted to think that the Lord is not in complete control? There's probably areas of life where that's easy for you. There's probably areas of life where that's hard for you. What are the areas of life where it's hard for you to believe that the Lord is in complete control? Maybe it's when it comes to your spiritual growth. So there's, there's one particular sin or a few particular sins, and you think, I just can't get out from under these sins. I'm pursuing the Lord. I'm trying to grow in this way, but it's just never going to happen. I'm never going to get past these sins. Well, basically, what, what we're saying when we think that way is God must not be in com- complete control of that area of my, my spiritual life. May, maybe it's, it's when you think about your material situation or you think about uh, maybe the spiritual state of your, your kids or your grandkids, or, or you think about your physical health or, or your employment. And so you get so sinfully anxious about those things. But when we do that, it's like we're thinking there's a, a corner that, that those horses of God's will aren't going to get to, that maybe they'll miss one. And that doesn't happen. No, they cover all the ground. Those horses run throughout all the four corners and and everything in between. God exercises complete control over the universe. In one way or another, God will make everything right. And and to see that, let's do something kind of odd. Let's hop down to our final point for just a minute, fourth point. We're going to come up and look at the third point, go back to the fourth point. So look down at that final point. It's really the main point of this vision. And that is that God's future defeat of his enemies is certain. As we've seen so much already throughout Zechariah, the, the book of Revelation gives us some clarity here because there's so many connections between Zechariah and Revelation in terms of the imagery. So, so if you've got a Bible open, flip over to Revelation 6. It's, it's page 968 if you're using one of our Bibles. Revelation 6. While you're turning there, let me remind you that the vision in Zechariah 6, we've, we've got these horses that are sent out from God. They ride off to what verse 5 calls the four winds of heaven. So go to Revelation chapter 6. That's the passage Ramon read earlier. Jesus uh, opens these seven seals. And when he opens the first four, four different horses ride out of heaven. And what they're doing is bringing God's judgment on his enemies same way that we see prophesied here in, in Zechariah chapter 6. We'll look over at Revelation 7, and let's see what the four winds, the phrase we see in Zechariah, what do the four winds have to do with judgment? Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. He says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, that's the imagery we've already seen, holding back the four winds of the earth. Okay, so what's that symbolic of? The angels are holding back the four winds of the earth in Revelation 7. What's it talking about? Go to Revelation 7, verse 3. Two verses down. The angel tells God's servants, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God. Okay, so holding back the wind 
is symbolic of holding back God's judgment. It's what we see here in Revelation 7. You can flip back to our passage now, Zechariah chapter 6. So, so when we read in Zechariah 6 about these horses being sent out and they're going to the four winds, that's judgment language. These horses are going to bring eventual judgment on the enemies of God's people. And of the four directions, north, south, east, and west, look at where the focus ends up. Verse 7 in our passage. When the strong horses came out and they were impatient to go and patrol the earth, and he said, go patrol the earth, so they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Okay, now why would God's judgment be focused on the north country? Again, it's because so many of Israel's enemies were there. Assyria, Babylon, Samaria. So Assyria and Babylon, those were the two nations that destroyed Israel. So the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians in 722. The Babylonians come in and wreck Judah and the southern kingdom in 586, tear the whole thing up. And it's only a few generations later where Zechariah is being given these, these visions. And, and even during the reconstruction of Jerusalem, Samaria to the north has tried to sabotage those efforts. Nehemiah talks about that a lot, and Ezra talk about the, the enemies that are still attacking God's people. So when God's spirit set at rest in the north, what's being communicated is God's saying, I will defeat your enemies. These enemies in the north, they'll be defeated. And, and again, that's the main point of this vision. But, but here's where we're going to insert this third point real quick, and then we'll come back to the final point. Look again at the language that's used to describe God once his judgment against the enemies in the north has been declared. Look at verse 8. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So once his judgment is proclaimed, once it's a certainty, then we're told God's spirit is set at rest. And this is our third point. God is the one most troubled by sin in our world. We see it there with those two words, at rest. He's the one most troubled by sin in our world. Throughout, throughout history, there have always been critics of the God of the Bible that would say something like, okay, listen, this, this is a problem. There's, there's a logical inconsistency, Christians, because if God is real and he's good and he's in charge, then he wouldn't let sin happen in this world. And so they charge God with wrongdoing. If he exists, he must be a bad God because he allows sin in this world. So either he's real or he's not really powerful or he's not really good. You're probably familiar with that charge. And, and we wonder things about that sometimes as well. So you understand that kind of thinking. Maybe you trust God, but, but you do feel the tug of how much evil there is in this world. Well, what we need to remember is, is God is the one most troubled by sin in our world. And, and so in this vision, God isn't at rest until his plan for judgment is, is set in motion. God's the one most troubled by sin in our world. Just remember what we're told in Genesis 6 before the flood. This is Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So God is grieved by sin, grieved by the effects of sin in this world. He, he's the one most troubled by it. Or think about the story in John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
So when Jesus approaches, he finds out Lazarus is dead. Jesus undoubtedly knows what he's about to do. He's going to raise him from the dead. But even though Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead, do you remember what we're told about Jesus before that happens? We're told that he wept. Jesus was heartbroken. He was sad. And he was sad because of the effects of sin in this world. The Lord is troubled by sin and by the effects of sin in this world like death. He's the one who's not at rest as long as there's sin in this world. And you know what the funny thing is about people charging God with wrongdoing because he's putting up with sin? The funny thing is those critics are sinners. Isn't that something? So the ones who are charging God with not being good because he allows sin, they're charging the only one who doesn't sin, they themselves being sinners, they charge the only one who doesn't sin with not taking sin seriously. Now, how crazy is that? It's how crazy we are as humans, though. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so anytime we hear that charge, all we have to do is ask the question, okay, who is it who sins, God or this person? It's always that person. It's never the Lord. No, God is the only one who takes sin fully seriously. He took it so seriously that he sent his son to pay for it. That's the, that's the only way anyone can be saved. He's too good to just sweep sin under the rug. He has to deal with it, so he does it with his son. We read that in Romans 3.25. God put him forward as a propitiation. It means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath on our behalf. Put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God's the one most troubled by sin. Not us. He is. Okay, well, now we'll close by going back to the, the fourth point. God's future defeat of his enemies is certain. Listen to what we read in chapter one. The first vision, horses, horses in this vision. Listen to chapter one, verse 11. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now, you might remember, but this is a bad rest. It's a rest. It's talking about God's enemies. God's enemies are at rest. They're peaceful. There's nothing bad happening to them. Even though they're attacking God's people, they're doing fine. They are at rest. We know that because in chapter 1, verse 15, God says, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease that are at rest. Okay, between the first vision and this vision, there's a play on words, and it's this idea of rest. So in chapter one, God's enemies are at rest. But see, by the eighth vision, it's not the enemies at rest anymore, because God is going to judge them. It's God who is at rest. Because see, those, those two rests, they're mutually exclusive. As long as evil rests, God is not at rest. And when God is at rest, it's because evil is no longer at rest. But that's exactly what God is promising to his people in this eighth vision. God's defeat of his enemies is certain. A day is coming when he will defeat all his people's enemies, Satan and sin and death. They'll all be defeated. Early in the service, we read about it. Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So the day is coming when Jesus will return to judge his enemies from the four winds and to save his people from the four winds. And on that day, God's spirit will finally be fully at rest. Zechariah 6, 7, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful that your will is always accomplished. That's such an encouragement to us as those who are your children through trust in Christ. Because we, we know that you, you guarantee our spiritual good in all things. And Father, we know that your will is always perfect and right. So we take great comfort in that. You're in charge of all things. Your will will come to pass. And Father, we're so thankful that, that part of your good will is that your enemies will all be defeated. And that, Father, you aren't fully at rest until that happens. But we're so thankful it's a certainty. We pray that in the midst of a, a sinful, difficult world where sin affects everything around us, and not only that, but we have sin inside of us, in our own nature, Father, we pray we would take great hope and comfort as we know that one day that will not be so and all sin will be taken outside the kingdom of heaven. We pray that you would focus our eyes toward that day for our good and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.